as I begin, I want to tell you a story about when I very first moved here to back to uh, College Station Grace Bible Church, took a job, brand new pastor at Grace Bible Church, and uh, chairman of our elder board at the time was Mike Gentry. He's chairman again. I think that was his first tour as chairman. And Mike, since I'm a new pastor, he said, hey, let's go uh, get breakfast together. And uh, a couple of things are important about this particular appointment with Mike, right? So I'm a, I'm a brand new pastor. I'm j- I just come on staff. Uh, Mike wanted to have breakfast because uh, Mike like, goes to bed at 7.30 in the morning and starts his day at 4 a.m. Like, he's just a super early morning, so he's going, let's do breakfast. And he compromised that we'll do, do 7 a.m. Uh, he wanted to do Monday morning to start the week, because that's how Mike goes. They like, start the week fast, start the week hard, Monday morning. Uh, at that point in time, all of the pastors on staff took Monday off. Okay, now take Friday off, but at that time, right, it's Monday is our day off, but if the chairman says you wanna, he wants to meet for you for breakfast, you say, yes, sir, when do you want to meet? And I just did, so I put it on my calendar. Uh, at that point in time, we're all using paper calendars too, right? So I've got a, a day timer, a little paper calendar. I scribble in an in ink, you know, here it is, 7 a.m., meet with the chairman of the board, Mike Gentry, Monday morning. Monday morning came and went. Okay, Monday morning came and went. Uh, I didn't wake up. I didn't think about it because it wasn't part of my regular routine. I completely missed uh, uh, my first appointment with the chairman of my elder board. About 8.30 in the morning, Mike called me and he said, hey, uh, I thought we were having breakfast this morning. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I missed my first appointment, chairman of the elder board. Mike, please, please forgive me. I won't let it happen again. I'm sorry. You know, Mike was super gracious. That's fine, Brian. He forgave me. And, you know, the beautiful thing is he's, he's never brought it up again, like only two or three times a year for the last 30 years. Um, you know, when it's the appropriate opportunity, he wants to jab at me. He goes, yeah, yeah, remember our first appointment that you forgot. Now, I tell you that story uh, because it's kind of a trivial example, and I just don't want to be too vulnerable this morning. So it's, you know, just kind of a shallow illustration of me failing someone, right? And I had to ask forgiveness, and we all do this, right, in, in little trivial ways, but also in big ways. We, we, we can harm the people around us, the things that we say, things that we do, things that we should have said that we didn't say, or things that we should have done that we knew we, we actually uh, can sin against one another and harm one another. What do we do in those moments? Well, acknowledge it, right? Own it. Own it quickly. Ask forgiveness and make a plan. How are you going to do better in the context of that relationship moving forward in the future. That's true in all of our human relationships. It's true in our relationship with God. James would write, we all stumble in many ways, right? There are all kinds of ways that we, that we fail in our relationship with God. And Apostle John would add on, he'd say, uh, if anyone thinks that he has no sin, he's deceiving himself, right? We do, we, we do. It's just, it's an inevitable part of being broken people in a broken and fallen world that there are times where we're going to sin and we're going to fail in our relationship with God. What do we do? The same thing that we do with people. We acknowledge it, seek forgiveness, think about how we can really live better in the context of that relationship. Right? That's what we ask for from the Lord. And so what we're going to see in these last two uh, things that Jesus tells us to, to request from the Lord, he's going to talk to us about how do we, how do we deal with our sin, you know, ask forgiveness, and how do we anticipate and receive God's protection for the future so that we don't sin again. So remember, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, right in the very center of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructing his followers how to pray. And he assumes that they're praying, but he doesn't assume that they're praying well, that they really understand how to pray in an appropriate way. 
And so he starts to instruct them, and he says, when you pray, and I know that you will pray, don't pray like the hypocrites, right? Don't pray like the self-righteous religious people around you who are just praying for show. Don't, don't pray to impress other people because your prayer life is just your communication with your heavenly father. It's your relationship. Don't worry about what other people think and don't try to pray in such a way that they're impressed. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the pagans because they pray in such a way that reveals they don't actually know who God is. Because the way that we pray reveals what we actually think about God. What we say, what we don't say, how often we pray or don't pray reveals what we actually think about God. And so he says, don't pray like the pagans who think their gods are like them. They, they fall asleep, they, they take naps, they go on vacations, they get injured, they're not paying attention. And you've got you to really wake them up and you've got to coerce them and you've got to manipulate them. He says, your, your heavenly father isn't like them, that he knows what you need before you ask him. He's waiting and longing to give you good gifts. So when you pray, Jesus says, pray like this. Let's read in verse 9. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Don't pray using meaningless repetition. But here's a pattern. When you pray, pray consistently with who God is. He's your father. He's a father who's strong and wise and caring and gives you unconditional love. He's, he's all that you could imagine in Heavenly Father. All that you need in Heavenly Father, God provides. And what he longs for most, his priorities are that his name or his reputation would be known throughout the face of the entire earth. Why? Because that's best for us. But it's best when people know who God is because we can't even actually understand ourselves apart from understanding who God is. Hallowed, set apart, be your name. Your kingdom come because when your kingdom comes, everything's going to be set right. Sin will be removed. The earth will be restored. Your will be done across all the face of the earth but also in my life. On earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, everyone bends the knee and they enjoy the presence of God. Now, may that happen here on earth as well. Then Jesus says, now, start asking for your needs. Give us this day our daily bread. His point being, if you can ask for bread, you can ask for anything, right? You can ask for the most basic things that you need, all of your needs, all your desires, your friends' needs and their desires. Ask for these things. Now, what do you ask for next? When you sin, ask forgiveness. And when you think of the future, ask for protection. Okay, so ask forgiveness and ask for protection. Those are the two next things that Jesus is going to encourage us to ask for. So let's read it again. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, so begin the requests, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So let's talk for a minute about sin. And we love to talk about grace, but we actually can't begin to talk about grace until we understand why we need grace, sin. Let's talk about sin for a minute, okay? Um, Throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, there are a variety of words or descriptions for sin. Let me give you just a few. Um, one is, that we're kind of really familiar with is uh, trespass. Yeah, trespass is when there's a, a clear and known boundary and you step across it, right? No trespassing. You cross a known boundary with a known consequence. My kids are little. I say, don't touch the stove. If you touch the stove, you will be burned, right? Here's the boundary. You step across it. You know where the boundary is. You know what the consequence is. That's a trespass. There are also uh, transgressions, which 
kind of defines the word, uh, we might say like a, a misstep. So maybe you weren't sure where the boundary was or what the consequence was, but there still is a consequence. There still was a boundary there. It's a misstep. You didn't know, but it's still a violation of God's norm. So you, you say to yourself, you know, man, I just didn't know that on April 18th, I needed to turn in my 1040. I didn't know that. Sorry. Yara <laughs> says, I'm glad you're sorry. Now here's the penalty, right? It's a misstep. There's still a consequence. Now, the most common word for sin in the New Testament is uh, hamartia, which means to, to miss the mark. To sin is to miss the mark. It's kind of the most general or generic term for sin. And the background for that word is really fascinating to me. Uh, it comes from uh, Greek mythology. There was a, a mythological uh, figure. His name was Hamarte. And according to the myth, Hamarte picked up his spear and he threw it at his opponent, but he missed. Okay, so he missed the mark. His name was Miss the Mark. That's his name. Okay. Now, this is just bonus. It has nothing to do with the Lord's Prayer at all. But just, just, I just, I, this is one of my musings. I'm just musing in front of you. There, I don't think there's really any spiritual value to it. But I just don't, so you understand how, how kind of how my mind works. So just think about that for a moment, right? So this child is born, right? And they've been praying for and longing for a son. And their child is born. And they hold their child in their hands. And they look at their son, their newborn son. And they say, eh, that's close, but not quite. Let's call him Miss the Mark, right? I'm like, how did that happen? Anyway, so the point is, sin, miss the mark. What's the mark? The glory of God, which is shorthand for talking about all of God's attributes, all of his perfections, all of his accomplishments, in a single word, God's glory. God's beauty, God's radiance, God's accomplishment, God's attributes, that's the glory of God. The mark is that. If you want to have a relationship with God, you have to hit the mark, which is God's perfection. Can you know? Paul will say in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, that is, all have missed the mark and fallen short of the target, which is the glory of God. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't use any of those words to describe actual sin. What he, the, use, the word he uses is to describe the consequence or the result of our sin. Let's read it again. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay? So sin is anything that we say or do or think or feel that falls short of the glory of God and consequently puts us in debt to God. Jesus uses the word for the result of our sin, the effect of our sin, which is all of our sin puts us in debt to God. It's a word that could literally refer to financial debt. In this case, it's referring metaphorically to the, the moral debt we owe to a perfect God. We are in debt to God because of our sin. And here's the problem. We can't afford to pay the debt. We are spiritually bankrupt. We don't have resources to pay our debt. As Paul will say also in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin or the debt we owe for our sin is death. That is permanent separation from God. That's how much debt we've accumulated. So if we pay the debt, what we experience is permanent separation from God because we are spiritually bankrupt. We don't have the resources to pay our own debt. So what do we do? We rely upon God to pay the debt for us, right? That's the gospel message that God intervenes on our behalf. And he says, let me pay your debt for you because God can't just pretend there's no debt. 
because he is perfect in his holiness. So someone has to pay the debt. We pay the debt or he pays the debt. Let me illustrate. Todd Berkey walks into my office while I'm preaching in between services because he decides he wants to get a book out of my office and he has a key and he goes into my office to borrow a book. He doesn't tell me he's going to borrow a book, but he borrows a book from my office. And this could be a real scenario. Just, it could be, right? Could be. So um, it might have happened before. So Todd goes in my office and he borrows a book. And then Todd reads the book and he's read it for three or four weeks. He forgets who he borrowed it from. In spite of the fact that my name is stamped and, you know, written in the cover of the book, he forgets and somebody comes in, hey, can I borrow that book? And Todd loans that person the book. They read it for a few weeks. Todd forgets who he loaned it to. I come to Todd to get my book because I know Todd took my book because I have cameras set up in my office, right? I'm, I'm watching all the time. I go, Todd, I saw you take my book. He goes, oh my gosh, I forgot that was your book. I, that was a misstep. I go, no, it was a trans, it was a trespass. Right? Because <laughs> there was a boundary. It's my office door, and you trespassed, and you know the consequence for trespassing. It was just a misstep. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it, and I forgot whose book it was. I said, I don't care. There's still a consequence. I don't have a book, and I need that book. Todd pays, or I can release him from the debt and pay the debt for myself. I can buy myself a new book. Let's say Todd has no money left in his expense account, which is also possibly a good true scenario. He says, I have no money. And I say, Todd, that's okay. I will cover your debt. That's forgiveness, to release someone from the debt. God releases us from the debt, not because he pretends that our sin doesn't matter, but because Jesus was the substitute payment for our debt, Right? Our debt has been paid by Jesus. That's the gospel message. Stop trying to pay your own debt because you can't. Instead, you say to Jesus, thank you for paying my debt. And I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you've never had that moment for yourself where you said, God, okay, I get it now. Jesus paid my debt of sin. He's covered all of my payments. Thank you. You just say, thank you. I receive his payment on my behalf, and I don't need to keep trying to earn your favor or, earn, or do something that removes my debt because I can't just, I just say, thank you. Let me encourage you. The moment that you do that, your debt is removed. You have eternal life. You have a relationship with God that will last forever. You are a son. You are a daughter now. That cannot be severed. I would encourage you, if you haven't had that moment, say yes to Jesus this morning. Now, here's part of the problem. Even after we say yes to Jesus, and we are now sons and daughters, we're probably going to keep sinning. Okay, we're not going to say yes to Jesus and achieve this you know, moral perfection. It just doesn't happen. But we're going to grow and we're going to mature and there are things that we're going to overcome. But we will still have times where we trespass and where we misstep, where we miss the mark. What do we do in those moments? Acknowledge it. Ask forgiveness. Right? That's what you do. That's what Jesus is talking about. Ask for forgiveness begins with confession. Confession means, literally in Greek, to say the same thing. God says, that's a transgression. God says, that's a trespass. God says, you missed the mark. And we don't deny it any longer. We say the same thing. God, you're right. You acknowledge it. You confess it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, let me illustrate from 1 John chapter 1. John writes it like this. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, let's stop right there. He's saying when we're walking in fellowship, we're walking with him consistently 
And, and he points out sin. We confess sin and we stay in fellowship with him. We also have fellowship with one another. And what happens is the blood of Jesus, this is present tense, continuously cleanses us from all sin. It keeps us in intimacy with God. Because when we sin, what happens is the intimacy is broken. When we confess, the intimacy is restored. We don't lose our relationship with God when we sin as believers, but we may lose the intimacy of the relationship just as in our human relationships. We harm one another until we confess and say the words and seek and grant forgiveness. There's, there's a breaking in the intimacy. Well, that happens with the Lord as well. But when we're walking with him and we're confessing, we have restored intimacy because the blood of Jesus continuously is cleansing us from all sin. On the other hand, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice he says, he's faithful and he's righteous to forgive. He's faithful because he promised that our debt is removed in Jesus. He's righteous because he declared Jesus' sacrifice was enough. So he can restore us to fellowship just like that because Jesus has already paid the price and he can restore our intimacy. So if confession is so uh, good for us and freeing and restores relationship, why is it so hard to confess? Why is it so hard to acknowledge our sin to the Lord. I would say there's a couple reasons for me personally. One is, as honestly, it's just pride. I would rather just skip over the missteps and the trespasses. I'd, I'd rather just, I'd rather think well of myself. It's, I don't enjoy, let, let me slow down and allow the Spirit to examine me and begin to point things out. That's not pleasant. I, so there's, a, there's an element for me of pride. I like thinking well of myself. I don't like thinking poorly of myself. It's just, I don't know, it's a personality trait. <laughs> I just don't. Uh, the other, I think, sometimes for us is fear. We wonder, is, will God really forgive me? Will, will he really still love me? Will he love me the same? Or do I kind of need to stay in this uh, place of on earth purgatory and payment a bit of misery? Or is God really that good that the moment that I turn back to him, he says, come. You know, Jesus told a parable about this. Uh, we call it the, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, in the parable, remember the son uh, rudely asked for his inheritance before his father has, had died, socially just completely out of bounds. He says, give me my half. Father liquidates some assets, give him, gives him the half. That son goes off and he just wastes it. He squanders it. Pretty soon it's all gone. He's just eating with the pigs. And what's happened in the meantime is every day the father has gone out to the edge of his property and he's just scanned the horizon. He's just standing. He's just waiting. But he's waiting and he's weeping. He's praying for his son to return. When his son finally wakes up and realizes, you know, I'm just living with the pigs. This, this is not how life should be. And he gets up out of the pigsty. He starts coming to the father. The father sees him before he sees the father. And the father rushes to him, runs to him, and wraps his arms around him, even while he's still stinky, right? He hasn't even showered or bathed or anything. Wraps his arms around him and restores him to fellowship in the family. Now, we call it the prodigal son because prodigal means uh, recklessly extravagant, right? The son is recklessly extravagant with his father's resources. I think we should call it the, the parable of the prodigal father. Because the, the, it's the father who's recklessly extravagant with his love for this son. This is, this is crazy. 
The son should come back and work as a slave and get cleaned up and clean up his act and prove that he is worth it. Instead, the father just runs and he rushes and he loves on him and he hugs him and he brings him back in. And Jesus told that parable so that we would, we would understand that's what God is like. No fear. Don't you, when, you, when you sin, he doesn't love you less. When you think you had a good day, he doesn't love you more. He loves you perfectly and completely at all times. So confess and then receive, right? Believe that God's grace isn't just a a theological concept, but this is actually how God thinks about us and loves us. Listen to uh, David's words from Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Remember, in David's worldview, how far is the east from the west? Well, David stood in Jerusalem and he looked east and he couldn't see over the horizon. They looked west and he couldn't see over the horizon. They, they just go on forever. God says, it's removed. Now let's be back together. So, when the Spirit shines light on our sin, we confess. And don't fear because it's there whether you acknowledge it or not, right? It's just wisdom to confess it. Let me illustrate. Um, when I was a kid growing up, we, we always did all, all our own painting in our houses because we didn't have a lot of money, and my dad said, look, we're moving into a house, we'll paint it. We're moving out of a house, we'll paint it. Uh, his dad had taught him how to paint, so my dad taught me and my sister how to paint, so we always uh, painted our own house, painted our own rooms, and uh, actually came to kind of enjoy it. Uh, um, you feel like you actually accomplished something in a day, like even now. Uh, needed a wall painted in my office, I painted it, because then I look at that wall, I go, I did that, right? I, because sometimes my days feel like, did I get anything done? I painted a wall. Done, right? So I would paint a wall, and I'd call my dad, and i go, Dad, I'm done. And he said, well, did you miss any spots? He'd go, nope. I was super careful. I didn't miss any spots. He'd go, okay. And he would hand me, he had a safety light, and he would plug it in, and he'd say, all right, let's look at the wall. And then we would take that safety light, and we would go along the wall, and then you would see the areas where it was thin, or I'd missed a spot, right? And you could see it just exposed all of that. Well, that's what the Spirit does for us. Right? The, the spots, the gaps, they're already there. In moments like this, you open the Word, and the Spirit brings conviction, and He gives you an opportunity to receive the blessing, freedom of confession. And so I want to encourage you, there probably are some of you who walked in here this morning there was something you were, you were holding on to, and maybe it was because of pride or fear or shame or guilt. You don't want to think about it, but you need to lay it down because the moment you do, you experience God saying to you, forgiven, forgiven. And so I want to encourage those of you who may have brought something in like that, that you're just kind of avoiding thinking about it. The Spirit is giving you this moment where he's just shining his light into those little gaps and crevices in your life, and you can have freedom by just turning to him and saying, thank you that it's forgiven in Jesus. If we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Jesus has paid the price. So we confess, we receive his forgiveness, and then we extend his forgiveness to others. Notice what Jesus says here. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay? So, Forgive us 
in the same way and to the same measure that we have forgiven others. How about that? How about if we were only forgiven to the same measure that we were willing to forgive others? What's interesting is this is the only uh, part of the Lord's prayer that actually has commentary by Jesus afterwards. Look at verse 14. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Jesus isn't saying, if you don't forgive others, then you can't be my son or daughter anymore. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying, uh, you just proved you were never my son and daughter. That's not what he's saying. If you've believed in Jesus, you're a son and you're a daughter. If you hold on to unforgiveness with others, then that's going to really disrupt the intimacy and enjoyment of your relationship with God. So Jesus says, Forgive us as we have forgiven others. Forgive us like we've been forgiven. Forgive us uh, as we have extended forgiveness to others. Remember the Apostle Paul uh, reiterates the same idea, Ephesians 4. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. How are we to forgive others? Just like we've been forgiven. How are we forgiven? Freely. Didn't deserve it. Didn't even know we needed to ask for it, but as soon as we asked for it, it was granted. Or listen to what John says, 1 John chapter 4. In this is love. In other words, here's the definition of love, the pinnacle of love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means satisfaction of God's wrath against our sin. That is, Jesus is the substitute. Here's the definition of love, that God was willing to remove our debt of sin and pay it Pay the debt we owed him, but paid himself through his son. That's the definition of love. Beloved, if God loved us in this manner or so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, we have a moral obligation or a moral debt to forgive others because our moral debt to God has been released or forgiven. And when we do, we're blessed, right? It restores our intimacy with the Lord. And when we don't, we hold on to things with others we suffer. We suffer. I'll read to you from another psalm that David wrote. Chapter 31, verse 10. David said, My strength has failed because of my iniquity, and my body has wasted away. In chapter 32, Psalm 32 as well, David talks about uh, unconfessed sin, and he says, it just, it's like, it just wrecks my bones, like it's rottenness in my bones when I'm not willing to confess uh, one of the iniquities that we hold on to sometimes is our unwillingness to forgive others. So when we're unwilling to forgive, what happens? Well, it becomes like rottenness in our own bones, right? We're, we're causing our own selves to suffer. Have you ever known someone who's aged through life and they haven't been willing to release others of their debt and they become more and more and more bitter? They get to the point at the end of their life and they can't even remember what they didn't forgive. But it's already, it's just wrecked them. I mean, it shrivels people up, not just spiritually and emotionally, but I've even seen it just like shrivel people up physically. That's what Paul's talking about. It's like rottenness in my bones. It's Frederick Buchner who he wrote a little book. It's called um, Theological ABCs. And one of the chapters is on forgiveness. And he says, uh, bitterness, right? An unwillingness to forgive. He says, it's like a feast. You think about how you were wronged, right? And you run it over and over again in your mind. Man, that was wrong, that was wrong. A person shouldn't have done that. And then you begin to rehearse, if I ran into this person, this is what I'd say. Boom, 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 right? 
And you, you've got the whole script down. You're, being, you're talking to yourself. You're talking to this imaginary uh, moment where you interact with this person that's harmed you. And he says, it's like a feast. He goes, it's a feast fit for a king. He said, here's the only problem. What you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast, that's you. Right? <laughs> you, just, you just destroyed yourself with your own bitterness. There's freedom not only when we confess our own sins, but when we release others, we are blessed. It restores our intimacy with God. It restores our intimacy with other people. It's a blessing. So Jesus says, forgive us our debts. And we're reminded, also, let us forgive others. Let us be people who also forgive, rightly related to God, rightly related to others. Now, how do you do that? Well, you know, some of you have probably been, probably been wronged really, really deeply, and it's hard to let it go. I think the starting point is this, just remember and rehearse what you've been forgiven. Okay, start there. That all of your debts have been removed by Jesus. Even the things you may do in the future, already paid for. Remember all that you've been forgiven. But second, remember, and give yourself a little bit of break, forgiveness isn't just a moment, right? You don't just go, done, forgiven. You forgive and you lay it down and you release it to the judge of the universe, right? He, God will get justice in his way and his timing. You give it to him. And you turn around and you just pick it up again and you rehearse again. You go, okay, I need to release it because I've been forgiven. And God is just and he can work it out. And you take another step away, but then you kind of go back and you pick it up, right? And that's, that's kind of how forgiveness works. You don't, you don't just forgive once. It's a, it's a muscle that you begin to exercise. And the more you forgive, the more you become a forgiving person and you end your life in freedom as opposed to bitterness. So let me encourage you. There may be some of you this morning that what you really need to do is you need to release someone else from their debt. And God's speaking to you directly on that point. And maybe you need to walk out of here and you need to send a text or make a phone call, send an email. Maybe you need to go to somebody's house or maybe they don't even know that they wronged you. You just need to lay it down before the Lord. Okay, maybe that's your application. Jesus says, as you're making your requests, start with your mo most basic needs. If you can ask God for bread, you can ask him for anything. But next, let's move to spiritual. Let's get things right with God. God, forgive us our debts and remind us also that we need to forgive others. That's dealing with our past sin, and then he turns to the future. Now, as we walk through life, we will be tested and tried. Protect us as we walk through life. So forgive us and protect us. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, if 6.12 looks backward, forgive us our debts, 6.13 looks forward. Lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, when you trust in Jesus Christ, life will get easy, right? <laughs> it will not. It will not. That is a, it's a false assumption. Um, it might actually get harder. When you decide that you want to live your life for God's honor and glory, the enemy may come after you even harder than ever. This is a broken and fallen world. There are trials, and there are tests, and there are temptations. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Don't fear, I've overcome the world, and I will set all things right. But right now, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a battle. Are you prepared for it? Jesus says, pray that, like this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, what is Jesus act exactly saying? Because remember, when we study James, okay, 
Pull out your notes again. James 1, we said, trial and temptation are the same word in Greek. Remember that conversation? Trial and temptation, perosmos, perazo, it's the verb and the noun. Temptation and trial are the same word in Greek. So you only know is it a temptation or trial based on the context. Uh, trials are things that God allows or brings into our lives. They're tests. Uh, Genesis 22, Abraham was tested by God. God tested Abraham. Temptation, James says, comes from within, right? Our flesh, our own desires, or Satan, or the world order, right, are, are enticing us to sin. And what we said was, the same circumstance in our life can be used by God as a trial to form the image of Christ in us, or Satan will try to use it as a temptation to entice us to sin. So what's going on here? Well, remember, uh, James 1, let no one say when he is tested, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. So does God directly tempt us? No, he does not. On the other hand, Matthew 4 says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, right? So God allowed his Spirit to take Jesus into a place where Satan was going to tempt him. But the Spirit was going to use that moment to test Jesus, to prove that Jesus would rely on God in the midst of difficult circumstances. So what is Jesus telling us to pray? Uh, he's talking about tests, trials, temptations. The answer is, I don't know. After all that, I, I don't know. Um, I think that the gist of it is this. I think Jesus is saying that um, it's okay, even encouraged for us to pray, God, don't lead me into difficult circumstances. Don't, I, I would actually, God, I would prefer good circumstances. We would, would you not? I would prefer good circumstances. I prefer, I'd prefer a smooth path, path, an easy road. I'd prefer every decision super clear. I'd prefer, I'd prefer no trials. I'd prefer no temptations. God, pray like this. God, don't lead me into difficult circumstances, but if you do, deliver me from the evil one, okay? If you do take me down this path, like you took Jesus into the wilderness, don't let the devil have an opportunity to entice me to sin. Instead, use that circumstance to form the character of Jesus Christ in me. I think that's what Jesus is telling us to pray for. And it's, you know, that's just perfectly normal humanity. Father, I would rather that life not be hard. But if it's hard, let me not be tempted to evil. Instead, deliver me from the evil one and form Jesus Christ in me. Now, the point is this. In the context of prayer, prayer is one of our key resources for spiritual battle. Okay? Jesus in this verse, remember, it's just, this is just a template prayer. It's a model prayer. This isn't all the words that we're going to say in our prayer life. We don't repeat it meaninglessly. He's saying these are really key things to pray for. And one of the key things to pray for is, is your spiritual battle, that you not give in to future temptation and that Christ be formed in you. And prayer is one of the keys for you in spiritual battle. Why? Three reasons. I'm going to give you three reasons. First is this. Prayer reminds us, okay, model prayer, good prayer, prayer that's following Jesus' pattern here, reminds us that we are in a battle. Lead us not into temptation or testing or trial, but deliver us from the evil one. You are in a battle. You are in a trial. If you think you're not, you will lose. <laughs> if you say to yourself, you know what, I'm just tired of battling, I want some freedom, I'll just give in to the enemy. You don't get freedom, you become a prisoner of war. 
If you say to yourself, you know what? I think I'm content with just being a pretty good person, but not really living for Jesus. Then Satan's already won. Okay? What, he, what God wants for your life is that you engage in spiritual warfare, that you stand for the kingdom of God in any and every circumstance, and as a result, Satan's gonna come after you. And so, this prayer reminds you that you are in the middle of a spiritual battle. Remember when Jesus was about to go to the cross, he went into the garden, and he went into the garden to pray, because he knew he was going into spiritual battle, and he knew that prayer was one of the primary resources that he had for spiritual battle. And so he said to his friends, I'd like for you to do battle with me. Would you come into the garden with me? And what I need from you is I need you to watch and pray. He says to Peter and James and John, watch and pray. Pray, but don't just pray, watch. Watch for what? Well, watch for the enemy's attacks. Remember, he had just said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for permission to sift you like wheat. He's coming at you, Peter. But here, I've prayed for you. And I want you to come aside with me and pray and watch. Pay attention to the enemy's schemes, his strategies. He's coming at you. And what did they do? They they decided to take a nap, right? They took a nap. They didn't watch. The word for watch means literally stay alert. Stay alert. They did the opposite of staying alert. And so when the, the testing came and the soldiers came in to capture Jesus, what did they do? They fled. They failed because they weren't ready, right? This is spiritual warfare prayer. It's preparing you for the battle. It's reminding you you are in a battle. The second thing that prayer does for us is it aligns us with the will of God. So this prayer has priorities in it. It starts with God's name. It starts with God's kingdom. It starts with God's will. It's a surrender to God's way. And here's the problem. If we choose to go our way, even with part of our lives, then we're vulnerable to Satan's attacks. We are invulnerable to Satan's attacks when we say to God, your will be done, right? That's what gives us strength or power. Listen to James' words here, chapter four. It says, he gives a greater grace. And grace means what? It means unconditional favor, but also the power that comes from being in right relationship with God. He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to or stands against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If your life is absolutely 100% submitted to God, Satan can't get any traction in your life. When you allow a little bit of sin in your life that is unconfessed, Satan gets a foothold in your life. When you're holding on to something that, that you can say, well, mostly God's will, but a little bit of my will. But I really want the power of the Spirit in my life. It just doesn't work that way. But when you are living a life that is completely 100% surrendered to God's will, Satan loses every time. So this prayer reminds us to consecrate our lives entirely to God's will. And the third thing that prayer does for us is it unleashes our weapons for warfare. Okay, here's your second three-part point. Okay. It unleashes our weapons for warfare, and we're given three weapons for warfare in the Bible. The first is the Spirit of God. The word of God is the second, and the people of God. When we pray, God's spirit is unleashed through our lives, particularly when we say, thy will be done, not mine. Listen to Paul's words from Romans 8. In the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, I've said this before, but it's it's just such a remarkable thing. That, that right now, 
Father, Son, and Spirit are having a conversation about you. Isn't that crazy? And because God's infinite, he can be having a conversation about every single one of us, Father, Son, and Spirit, because he loves us so deeply. So Father and Son and Spirit are having a conversation that is prayer about our lives and what's best for us and trying to guide us and move us and direct us, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when we pray, we're entering into that conversation that's already ongoing between Father, Son, and Spirit. And we begin to pray, and we don't even know how we should pray. So what does the Spirit do? The Spirit just groans on our behalf, right? Groanings that we, we couldn't even imagine. What is the Spirit saying? But the Spirit's engaged, right? So when we pray like this, and we turn over our entire lives to God, then the Spirit's power is released in our lives. We're not clinging to our will, but we're 100% consecrated. Spirit's power is released. Second resource we have is the Word of God. And so we, we pray with the Bible open in front of us, and we take the words of, of God in front of us, and we turn those into a prayer. We allow God's word to guide what we pray for, how we pray, what's important when we pray. We're doing a whole series on prayer. We're just looking at Jesus's instructions on prayer, and then we're taking it and practicing it, right? The word is guiding our prayer. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 2, right after the birth of the church. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So what were their priorities? We need to listen to the word. The apostles are, are taking the word and they're teaching the word and they're listening. And then they're gathering together. And they're saying, let's, let's be together in listening to the word. Let's be together and let's share a meal. And when we share the meal, let's break bread and remember the death and sacrifice of Jesus. And then let's pray guided by the word and teaching together with one another. That's our third resource. It's the people of God. Right? So the spirit of God, the word of God, the people of God unleashed in prayer, our father. It's corporate prayer, our father. Forgive us our debts. Give us our daily bread. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray with one another. Let's challenge one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's be in the word together with one another, right? Point being, how do, we, how do we engage the enemy so that we're not defeated? We surrender our entire lives to him and we do it together with one another in prayer. In prayer. So how do we apply this? We pray. Right? We pray. We practice. And you know what? You're going to get better and better and better at communicating with your Heavenly Father the more that you do it. Remember we said this is like, this is the lecture and then we're going to leave here and then we're going to do the lab. And the lab is your life. And what you do in the lab is you just practice. And that didn't work that time. We're going to try another. We're going to do another way. We're just going to keep doing it and doing it. That's the rest of your life, right? It's lecture and lab. You look at the word. You read one of Paul's prayers and you take notes and study and think about what, what mattered to him in prayer. You're studying the word. It's lecture. You're listening to Paul instruct you on prayer. And then you're taking it and you're putting it in the lab of your life. And you're working it out in the context of your relationships. And what I wanted you to get from this series is you would just be stirred up again to get back in the lab. Just get back in the lab and pray and pray and pray. Now, as we close, I'm going to give you a few minutes to actually practice this a little bit. There are three words that I want you to be thinking about. The first is confess. It may be that what you need to do this morning is um, let God's Spirit bring something to light. It's already there. You don't need to be afraid of it and you're going to experience freedom when you release it. So if you carried something in, 
and you know you need to say, God, you're right, that's sin, please forgive me. Just do that in this moment. Uh, it may be that you just have a hard time receiving his forgiveness. You have a hard time actually believing it. I want you to spend a little time meditating on the uh, prodigal father, right, looking for, longing for, rushing out to uh, find his son and wrap him up in his arms. Receive it. Or maybe you need to receive that for the very first time. You need to have that first moment where you say to God, thank you for letting Jesus be uh, the one who pays my debt. I accept. Or it may be that there's somebody that you need to forgive. Like you're, man, you're just holding on to it and it's just a thorn in there. It's just festering a bit and you need to, you need to release it. And it might be that person's never even asked, they might not even know. Maybe you just, it's just between you and the Lord and you, you lay it down. You might pick it up again this afternoon. That's okay, just lay it down, pick it up, lay it down. Okay, you'll get better at that. Or you may need to send a text. You might need to get out here and just drive to the person's house. I don't know. But whatever the Spirit's calling you to do to release someone of their debt, do that. Okay, so let's just take a few moments quietly, let God's Spirit speak, and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, I thank you for the, the freedom and the power we experience through forgiveness. When we receive it from you and we grant it to others, I pray that we would walk out of here as people who are just a profound sense of freedom from the, the guilt and shame of our own sin and just strengthen and encourage to be those who extend forgiveness to others. I pray that we be reminded that we are in the middle of a, a battle and that our intimacy with you is, is just fundamental for going to walk faithfully with you. Father, I thank you that you've provided us with these resources because of the work of Jesus Christ, finished work. His death paid all of our sins. His resurrection proved that you have power over sin and death. I pray that we would walk in the, the, the freedom of that power and strength of Jesus and his accomplishments. It's in his name we pray, amen.